I wonder if you've ever seen a movie which only makes sense when you've seen the last few scenes of the movie. It's at that time, at the very end of the movie, where you have that aha moment. It often comes at the end, and when you see those last few scenes, it explains everything, and you run your mind back through the rest of the movie, and it makes so much sense at that point. I can think of several movies that are like that. One of them is The Sixth Sense. That movie was, uh, came out in 1999. I'm not going to tell you about the last few scenes. Although it has been 22 years. <laughs> Jesus' life and teaching doesn't make sense until you know what happened at the end of his earthly life 2,000 years ago. The crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus is what makes his life and teaching understandable. It all fits together when we look back through time, through the cross and the resurrection, and hear Jesus speak and see the actions that he takes. It all makes sense only then. Today we're considering a passage in which Jesus took dramatic steps and he taught mysterious things to demonstrate who he was and why he had come into the world. And yet, even though his disciples had begun believing in him, it didn't make sense to them, even to his disciples, until after the cross and his resurrection. But you and I, you and I have the benefit of reading the words of Jesus and about the actions of Jesus after the fact, knowing that Jesus went to the cross and rose again on the third day. And so as we read our passage this afternoon in John chapter 2, we can put it all together. And I think that John has written down this passage and explained it to us in the way he has so that we will all the more put our faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Turn with me to John chapter 2. We're in John chapter 2. And we're looking at verses 12 through 25. John chapter 2, verses 12 through 25. Follow along with me as I read. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man." Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, will the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in Your sight? O Lord, You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In our study through the Gospel of John, we've seen so far how the Apostle has laid out an overview in the first 18 verses of chapter 1 where he masterfully described Jesus as the eternal God of creation who took on a human body and a human nature and revealed to us the glorious Son of the Father. No one has ever seen God and lived. But now, now that Jesus has come, we can all draw near to Jesus through faith and see the living God. He did that for us, not because we deserved it, but because He's gracious. And then John told us the true story of how John the Baptist testified that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And immediately, disciples, some of whom were following John the Baptist, began to follow Jesus. And from the beginning, they believed that He was the Messiah and the Son of God, which all of the Scriptures predicted would come. Now, all of that happened in chapter 1. And then in the first 11 verses of chapter 2, Jesus performed the first miracle when He turned six huge jars filled with water into excellent wine at a wedding feast in a town of Cana, which was in the north in the region of Galilee. And that excellent overflowing wine was a sign that the blessings of God were finally being poured out on God's people through the presence of the Messiah. He had come. But the Messiah's coming into the world doesn't just bring blessings. He also comes to confront and correct the corrupted worship of God. In fact, that's what has to happen first. Before anyone can receive the greatest blessing that Jesus brings, which is salvation, even here in this second chapter of John, we'll begin to understand that Jesus will confront and correct our compromised worship through His death on the cross and His resurrection three days later. The big idea that I want you to see in this passage is to believe in Jesus, believe in the risen Jesus who confronts and corrects our corrupted worship. Believe in the risen Jesus who confronts and corrects our corrupted worship. 
the first of three points in the sermon this afternoon. We can see in verses 12 through 17, and there we see that Jesus rebukes compromised worship. Jesus rebukes compromised worship. After attending the wedding feast in Cana and performing his first sign, Jesus went down to the town of Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and disciples, and he stayed there a few days. Now, Capernaum would become the center of Jesus' ministry, at least when he was in the north, in the region of Galilee, near his home city of Nazareth. Now, it's worth just pointing out that verse 12 makes it clear that Jesus had brothers. He was not an only child. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that Jesus' mother, Mary, remained a virgin her whole life. It's called the perpetual virginity of Mary. But this verse and a number of others in the gospel accounts make it clear that Mary went on to have other children with Joseph, her husband. This is one of the many unbiblical beliefs that the Roman Catholic Church holds based only on tradition and not on the Scriptures. Then we see in verse 13 that Jesus moves to a new setting. He moves to Jerusalem. He's gone up to Jerusalem. I've gone up, of course, because Jerusalem was on a mountain. Because it's the time for the Passover festival, which God commanded all the Israelite men to celebrate once in the year. There are three, perhaps it's debated, four Passover festivals that are recorded in the Gospel of John, which tell us that Jesus' ministry lasted about three, three and a half years. When Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he goes to the temple. And there he finds the merchants selling oxen and sheep and pigeons inside along with money changers. Now, these merchants and money changers, they're there because it was necessary to bring animal sacrifices to the temple. That was the prescribed way that the Israelites were to worship God. And if you've traveled a long distance to get to the temple, to get to Jerusalem for the Passover, it of course made more sense to buy an animal for the sacrifice there in Jerusalem than it did to bring the animal along with you on the whole journey. So that's why they're there. It's not a bad reason that they're there. The money changers are there because every male Israelite had to pay a yearly temple tax, and it had to be paid in a certain currency. And everyone coming from the different regions outside of Israel wouldn't have had that currency. They had to go to money exchanges. And so they were the Jerusalem equivalent of the Al-Ansari or the Sharaf exchange stores, which you see all over Dubai. That's where people would go to exchange their money to pay the temple tax. When Jesus found all these animals and all these money changers, all these merchants inside the temple, Jesus took time and made a whip. Do you think about that for just a moment? Jesus took time to make that whip. He sat down, he took leather, he put it together, all the while intending what to do. And then he came back to the temple and he drove all the animals out of the temple courts. He poured out all the money boxes of the money changers and he turned over their tables. 
Jesus is angry. And He tells them why in verse 16. Look there with me. Verse 16. He says, Take these things away. Do not make my Father's house a house of trade. So why is Jesus angry? Commentators tell us that there's no evidence that the merchants were charging too much. It's not that there were unfair business practices going on. Instead, the problem is likely where they're located. They are inside the temple courts. And in that case, they would have likely been in what was called the court of the Gentiles, which was the only place that Gentile people could enter into the temple compound and pray. At one point in the past, these merchants had set up outside the Jerusalem city walls. But now, in order to perhaps sell more sheep, exchange more money, they've moved all the way into the temple complex and into the Gentile courts. And instead of a peaceful open place for Gentiles to come and pray, it's turned into a marketplace of barnyard animals and money changer stalls. The pure worship that God intended to take place has been compromised. It's been corrupted. One commentator says, worship has deteriorated into commerce. Concerns for making money have displaced God's place of prayer for the nations. God created us to worship Him. We're by nature worshipers, every single person. Whether you consider yourself to be religious or not, you are a worshiper. All people were made in God's image in order to represent Him on the earth. And God's original intention was that we were to live in loving obedience to Him in all that we think, in all that we say, and in all that we do. That's a simple, broad definition of worship. Worship isn't just singing and praising God. We don't just worship when we gather for a church service, although we do that here too as well. This is corporate worship. Every moment of every day is worship either of God or someone or something else. But sin, sin compromised and corrupted all worship of God ever since Genesis chapter 3. Love of God was replaced with ignoring God or even hatred of God. Obedience to God was replaced with rebellion against God. All sin is compromised worship, redirected worship, distorted worship. Brothers and sisters, because we're all sinners, we have compromised worship of God. And because Jesus is the pure and holy Son of God, when we consider Christ and His teaching, when we welcome Him into our lives, He will confront our compromised worship. Jesus challenges the areas of our lives that are filled with sin. He does this because He loves His Father, and He does this because He loves us as well. Because sin will kill us. And so Jesus turns the tables over in our sinful hearts. He upturns them. 
What part of your life has Jesus challenged lately? You know, I'm not sure you should question whether or not you're actually walking closely with Jesus if He hasn't challenged something in your life in the last six months, let's say. If there's not been some kind of conviction of sin in your life, could it be your sexuality? Jesus made you. He determines your sexuality. He puts the boundaries on your sexuality. Or is it your view of money and wealth? Has He challenged you about what you're spending money on? How you view the money that you're, that's coming into your pocket or your bank account? What about how you speak to your spouse or your children? Jesus cares how you treat them all the time. Maybe it's how you spend your time. Not only is your money something that God has given you to steward, God gives you every minute of your life to steward as well for His purposes and His glory. Could worry and distrust of God be compromising your worship of Him? The list goes on and on and on, doesn't it? Areas of our lives that Jesus could confront. If you're exploring what it means to be a Christian, you might not be familiar with this episode in Jesus' life. It's a little bit surprising, isn't it? Reading through the Gospels is a great way to begin understanding what Christianity is all about. I encourage you to continue. Read all the way to the end. But be careful that you don't just pick and choose only the teachings or aspects of Jesus that you want and reject the rest. You can't split Jesus up like that. You get all of Jesus or you don't get any of Jesus. Some people want the Jesus who turns water into wine, but... They don't want the Jesus who makes them uncomfortable by challenging the sin in their lives. But you can't take only part of Jesus. You have to receive all of Him. Will you let Him convict you of sin and lead you into a life of greater holiness and purer worship? He's doing it for the glory of His Father and for your own good. Listen to Jesus. Welcome in the confrontational Jesus in your life. Jesus' disciples had begun believing Him. They trusted that He was the Messiah and the King of Israel that God had spoken about in all the Scriptures. And so when they saw His zeal for the pure worship at the temple, their thoughts turned to the psalm written by King David. Psalm 96, which Cynthia read to us earlier. And a specific verse came to their minds. In that psalm, King David laments being unjustly attacked by his enemies because of his love for God and his zeal for the worship of God at the temple. 
They remembered that verse from Psalm 69, zeal for your house will consume me. But Jesus didn't come to simply rebuke the compromised worship at the temple. He came to replace the hopelessly corrupted place of worship for Israel as well. He came to replace the temple itself. Jesus announces that in verses 18 through 22 when he's confronted by the Jews for driving out the merchants. And so that brings us to the second point this afternoon. Jesus not only rebukes our compromised worship, but Jesus replaces the corrupted temple. Jesus replaces the corrupted temple. Jesus had done what the Jews should have done all along. They should have been the ones to put the merchants out of the temple courts to maintain an uncompromised place of worship for the Gentiles and for others. But they were more concerned at this point with just attacking Jesus and questioning His authority. And so verses 18, 19, and 20, they describe a brief confrontation between Jesus and the Jews, presumably the leaders among them. And they demand a sign from Jesus to prove, prove that you have the authority to do what you've just done, Jesus, is essentially what they're saying. But Jesus doesn't have to prove anything to anyone. He's the Son of God. He's the King of Israel. He's the Messiah come to His people. He can do anything He wants. And they should have recognized Him like the disciples did. And when they demand a sign from Jesus, he answers with a mysterious promise. Look there at verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, the Jews argue back to Jesus, and they tell him, basically, you're crazy. What are you talking about? This temple that we're standing in took 46 years to build. How in the world... Will you, Jesus, rebuild it in three days? That's just ludicrous. But the Apostle John has written his gospel after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it was only after Jesus' death and resurrection that the disciples remembered, remembered the statement of Jesus in the temple courts. And they put two and two together. And the Holy Spirit guided them to understand what he had meant on that day when he said that. He was speaking about the temple of his body. You know, one thing this teaches us is that even though we don't understand the words of Jesus sometimes when we read the scriptures, it's worth reading them and storing them away in our hearts because it may be that the Lord is going to give you understanding about that sometime in the future. The Lord is, through the Holy Spirit, going to help you understand what you read last week or last month or last year. And you're going to have an aha moment. It's going to fit together. And your belief in Jesus is going to deepen. So don't despair when you open up your Bible and you read your quiet time passage for the day, and some of it doesn't make sense. Ask the Lord. Ask the Lord to give you understanding in His time. Jesus said that, or the John here is telling us that Jesus was speaking about the temple of His body. 
being destroyed and raised up. See, 1,400 years before Jesus drove the merchants out of the temple, God had rescued the Israelites from Egypt and instructed them to build the first tabernacle. And then later in their history, a physical stationary structure, the temple. And the system of sacrifices that they carried out at the temple was the way that God had made it possible for sinful men and women to draw near to God. But God had promised before before the temple was even built that if Israel lived in continued disobedience to Him with corrupted worship of God at that temple, then He would destroy the temple and He would destroy their nation and He would send them into exile. He promised that even before they built it. And that's exactly what happened. It happened when the Babylonians came and conquered Israel about 700 years after the Exodus. God was 700 years patient with them. And yet, it was time when the Babylonians came and destroyed the temple. But God in His mercy sent them back to Israel eventually from exile, and He made it possible for them to build a second temple. Still, Israel continued to live in disobedience to God. The worship at the second temple was corrupted just as much as it was at the first temple. You know, sometimes a a building can be so corrupted, perhaps by mildew throughout or rotten materials or dangerous cancer-causing materials, that the building has to be torn down. It can't be salvaged. It can't be renovated. They have to strip it down to the foundation. That's what had happened with the temple for Israel's worship of God. Only the corruption hadn't come from the building itself, but the rottenness of the people who worshiped there. And now Jesus is telling them with His mysterious announcement that when they eventually will crucify Him, they would be destroying the temple of His holy and pure body. And again, in His mercy, God would raise that new temple of Christ's body through the resurrection. Oftentimes, when we think about the Scriptures being all about Jesus, all pointing to Jesus, we think first about the prophecies that say a Messiah will come or something to that effect. And the virgin will conceive. And the servant of the Lord will come and bear our iniquity, like it says in Isaiah 53, for example. And we're looking for a specific person to fulfill that specific prophecy. But just as much as those prophecies are about Jesus, there are people and events and places and institutions all in the Old Testament that are shadows pointing toward Jesus. And so the priesthood of the Israelites pointed toward Jesus as the great high priest. King David and the whole kingship of Israel pointed toward Jesus being the king of kings. The exodus of Israel pointed toward Jesus rescuing us out of slavery to sin and bringing us into the freedom of the Spirit. And here we see Jesus speaking about the temple. 
the temple which had been a physical structure where Israel was to go and worship God, the temple itself was a shadow or an image pointing to Jesus, the true place of worship. And so we can see that through what we call typology, all these people and institutions and places are foretelling that Jesus would come. The physical building, which was the temple, had been the place where sinful man could come near to a holy God and experience His forgiveness and mercy. But all along, God's plan was to send His only begotten Son to shed His blood for the sins of anyone who would repent and believe in Him. Jesus Himself would replace the corrupted temple. His crucifixion was the once and for all sacrifice that would atone for man's sin. And when the disciples saw His zeal for the temple, they remembered that verse from Psalm 69.9, but perhaps it was only after His death and resurrection that they would remember that He would be consumed. Consumed. Indeed, His body would be destroyed on the cross. And in so doing, Jesus became the person, not the place, that anyone could come and draw near to God and experience His grace and mercy. His resurrection was God's rebuilding of the temple in three days. This is the good news message of the gospel, brothers and sisters. This is at the heart of it. Jesus replaces the locations of worship which we corrupt with our sin, and He gives us Himself as the glorious, uncorruptible place where we can know God and worship Him with our hearts made pure by His sacrifice. The Jews didn't understand what Jesus was telling them. But do you? Do you see? Do you understand that Jesus Himself is the new and only way that you can be at peace with God? When the disciples finally understood what Jesus said on that day after the resurrection, they believed the Scriptures and the Word that Jesus had spoken. Do you believe that Jesus is the only way to draw near to God and know Him? Do you see that the tabernacle and the temple throughout the Scriptures were meant to prepare us for seeing that Jesus is the new place where we worship God without corruption? The buildings could be corrupted by man's sin, but Jesus can't be corrupted. Man made the temple corrupt, but the purity of Jesus makes man pure. Has Jesus marched into your world and turned over the tables pointing out your sin? Oh, brothers and sisters, fear not. Don't shrink back. Because this same Jesus who's zealous for the holiness of His Father and the holiness of your worship is the one who can make your sinful heart clean. Bring your corrupt heart to Christ and He will cleanse it. There is no sin that His death won't atone for. There is no wickedness that His crucifixion can't make clean. This building that we're in right now, the deck building, this room itself is not a holy place. This is just a building. 
Simply coming to a church service in a church building can't bring you close to God. Jesus is the only person where we worship the Lord. You must come to Jesus and believe in Him to be made right with God. Will you do that? But make sure your belief is deep and real, not superficial. Verses 23 through 25 describe people who claimed belief in Jesus, but Jesus didn't trust it. That brings us to the third point this afternoon. Jesus rejects counterfeit belief. Jesus rejects counterfeit belief. The sign that Jesus had done at the wedding in Cana was His first, but at this Passover in Jerusalem, after cleansing the temple, Jesus began to do many more signs that John doesn't even record for us here in John chapter 2. Many of the people who saw them would claim to begin believing in Jesus when they saw the signs, but the same sin that corrupted the temple is the same sin that would undermine their belief. It says in verse 23, many believed in His name. Now we read that and we're tempted to be impressed. We're inclined to begin thinking that the number of people who were trusting in Jesus as the Messiah was swelling. Lots of people were, as we call it now, being saved. But reading on to verse 24 and 25 tells us otherwise. Let's look at those verses one more time beginning with verse 24. But Jesus, on His part, did not entrust Himself to them because He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for He Himself knew what was in man. Jesus didn't entrust Himself to them because He knew what was in man. What was in man that would keep Jesus from entrusting Himself to them? Well, it was sin. The belief of these crowds was a superficial belief. It was a belief in Jesus the miracle worker, but not Jesus the Messiah who would suffer, die, and rise again. Some of these very same people who were rallying to Jesus the miracle worker would be the ones who cried out, crucify Him! Jesus could see into their hearts that their belief was counterfeit. It was fake belief. It was a belief that wanted what Jesus could give, but refused to obey Jesus when He said things like, you must take up your cross and follow Me. Brothers and sisters, there's a warning here for us to be cautious in declaring someone to be a Christian simply because they say they believe in Jesus. Belief can be counterfeit. People can be self-deceived. That's one of the reasons Why, when we consider someone for membership in Covenant Hope Church, we ask you to explain the gospel in simple terms and tell us how you became a Christian and how your life has changed since you've started following Christ. Only Jesus can truly see the heart of each of us, and so we do the best we can to try and discern whether a person's claim to believe in Jesus is credible. And when Jesus returns in power, He will judge each of us. And our belief will finally be proved right or proved to be counterfeit. 
our statement of faith on the perseverance of the saints reminds us that genuine believers will endure in true belief to the end. It says this, we believe that genuine believers are only those who endure to the end. Their persevering attachment to Christ is the grand mark which distinguishes them from those who falsely profess faith in Christ. So now is the time to test your faith. To examine yourself and see if your belief is counterfeit or true. Have you taken up your cross and followed Christ? Is He the Lord of your life? Have you let Him come in and turn over some tables, challenge you on some areas of your life? Do you welcome Him into your life to point out sin? Does it concern you that belief can be counterfeit? If you're even just a little bit worried that your faith might be fake, that actually might be a good sign, friend. Those with counterfeit belief rarely are troubled by words that challenge them to examine themselves and see whether they're in the faith. It's usually true believers who really want to know and wonder perhaps at times. If there's doubt in your mind, if there's doubt that your faith is true true faith, true belief, oh friend, I encourage you, turn to Christ and reaffirm your faith and trust in Him. Ask Him to continue His purifying work in your life based on His sacrifice on the cross for you. If you have doubts, run to Christ. Run to Christ. Jesus is the Son of God who is zealous for His Father's house, but gentle and lowly with those of us who are weak. From the very beginning of His ministry, Jesus was declaring through His signs and teaching that He was the Messiah sent from God the Father, and His disciples believed in Him. With His kingly rule would come the full blessings of God, like overflowing jars of wine, But King Jesus was jealous for the pure worship of His Father as well. And this King makes demands on our lives. He rebukes our compromised worship. In His kindness, He's made a provision to replace the corrupted temple with His own body. He's the new place where we worship God in purity and holiness that He supplies And He rejects counterfeit belief. Only those who take up their cross and follow Him are His true disciples. He only entrusts Himself to those who trust Him truly. Let's turn to Him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise You that we have the great benefit of listening to the words of Jesus and, in effect, standing there with Him on the temple mount and seeing Him drive out the animals and the money changers, seeing His zeal for the temple as we read this passage, knowing that these are true accounts of the risen Jesus. 
And we know that He went to the cross and has been raised again so that we might come to You and worship through Him, the temple whose latter glory is greater than the glory of the former temple. He is full of glory. We praise You for Jesus. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Let's sing to our holy God. Please stand with me.